The League of Women Voters is a people's organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all Americans in the decisions that impact their lives. Formed from the movement that secured the right to vote for women, the centerpiece of the League's efforts remains to expand participation and give a voice to all Americans. Our issues are grounded in our respected history of making democracy work for all Americans. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Finding Perspectives, focused on empowering and educating our community on voting and key issues impacting all of Arlington and Alexandria. My name is Krista Jones, and I'm excited to host this podcast produced by the League of Women Voters, Arlington and Alexandria City. In today's episode, we were sharing a conversation I had with Niall Blast and Andrea Miller on behalf of the Black Women's Roundtable Virginia. Niall and Andrea are two African-American women who are looking to increase voter participation in different ways. Niall is an organizer with the League of Women Voters of the U.S., and Andrea is the founding board member for the Center for Common Ground. As we seek to increase voter engagement in all of our communities, I thought this would be a useful conversation to share. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Black Women's Roundtable conversation about advocacy and getting out the vote in Virginia. My name is Krista Jones. I'm one of the co-conveners of Black Women's Roundtable Virginia, and we are so excited to have this conversation today. We have two amazing guests who are just going to dig a little bit deeper into their experiences and also provide best practices for you in terms of how we can effectively advocate for the issues that are most important for Black women and girls, as well as get out the vote. Our first guest will be Niall Blass, who serves as the DMV Regional Organizer of the League of Women Voters of the United States. She is responsible for organizing strategies and capacity building at the DMV and national level. Prior to joining the League, Niall worked to advance social equity through political advocacy, both institutionally and through grassroots organizing. As an organizer for Hoyas for Slavery Accountability, she helped coordinate restorative and restitution efforts at Georgetown University for the descendants of its enslaved population. We also have Andrea Miller, who is the founding board member, the Center for Common Ground, and the executive director of People Demanding Action and founding president of the National Women's Political Caucus of Virginia. And she's also also a member of the Democracy and Governance Working Group of the Virginia Green New Deal. Andrea is an IT and political director and a digital and election strategist. She designs and administers digital phone banks and texting programs. And so we are also excited to have as our moderator today, Mary Burroughs Gray. And so I'm going to turn it over to Mary. Good evening, everyone. And I'm excited to be your moderator for this evening. Let's go ahead and get started. The first question that I have is, what have you found to be the most effective way to get out the vote? Ms. Blatt? Yeah, wonderful. That's really such an interesting question because I think it oftentimes comes down to different demographics and communities, how they're showing up, what interests them in showing up, what political issues are enough to get that bridge from, not just engaging with political posts on Facebook, but I'm going to the polls, I'm supporting the polls as a poll worker or other such kind of organizing efforts. I think for me, my philosophical approach has always been meeting people where they're at. So I think that, for example, 
at the league. There's obviously a lot of issues as it relates to immigration in black and brown communities. So one thing that we've been doing as a new initiative is voter registration at naturalization ceremonies or providing voter registration information along with the cap and gown for young graduates in PG County and other black and brown communities. So I know that's a bit more diverse than a specific strategy, but I think the best of what we do is when it's tailored to who we're talking to, because not everything's going to work for every community. Excellent. Excellent. Would you like to add to that, Ms. Miller? Well, certainly we really, really target BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous people, color, and what we found our specialty is rural, that when we get into rural communities, those are really going to be communities where you can't door knock it. This is where you're not going to have very good phone numbers. So we do a lot of postcards. And we really have learned that we developed and designed our own line of postcards. We needed them to be racially inspiring and culturally sensitive because we realized when we let people use whatever they wanted to use for their own postcards, people were coming up with their giant Great Dane wearing a flag hat. We're like, no, no, culturally intimidating and traumatizing. No, for the people that we're doing outreach for. We do a lot of texting. And then we also do quite a bit on banking. But the greatest numbers are normally on the postcard side. Because while not everybody has a phone number, Every voter has an address. Excellent. So on to my next question, Ms. Miller. How would you encourage and motivate our volunteers? Well, we've got 55,000 volunteers. And the reason we have so many volunteers is early on, we partnered with national faith organizations, most specifically their social justice arm. So that means our volunteers are normally national faith groups who then let their regions of faith organizations, churches and synagogues know there is this opportunity to work with community of color voters and help them go and vote. And again, as a C3, we're never going to tell people who to vote for, but we are going to make sure they know when to vote, where to vote, and when possible, how to get a ride to and from the polls. Great. Ms. Blash, you may have already answered this question. What strategies have you found are different for Black voters? I think that Black people, when we're a diasporic community, right? So there's Black immigrants and Caribbean people, but there's also African-Americans, right? And so a lot of like my political work prior to the DMV, I'm from the DMV, but my family's from Mississippi. So a lot of my political workers in very long term, we've been here for generations, Black and brown rural communities. And I think what's really interesting is that a lot of other communities 
have an opt-in to politics so that my day-to-day -day is this and it would be a divergence from my day-to-day -day and my typical privileges and considerations to be worrying about who's in office and what policies are going to be put in place. And while not every black or brown person, well, we're talking specifically about black people, are as investigated and directly involved in politics, there's a peripheral knowledge and awareness in our communities that I think that is fundamentally different because maybe I don't have to care about the book banning if I don't directly have LGBTQ people in my community are disabled, but if we know they're banning books around Black intellectuals, that's already a dining conversation. That is something we're having in our communities. And I also think that there is this base of political and social advocacy that is in a lot of Black institutions that newer communities or communities maybe not as based in a consistent cultural experience have. So even from the civil rights movement to now, when we're looking to Black people organizing, we have Black churches. That's such an immediate and uniquely organized space where actions implemented. And there's Panhellenic and Divine Nine that have been doing that work for generations. So yeah, I think those are the two things that typically, I think, define Black communities uniquely. Okay. So we talk a lot about the youth, targeting the youth for voting. How do you engage the youth today? What recommendations do you have for other organizations to engage the youth to get them to vote or even to just register to vote? Well, for us, we never use the term register to vote. We only say register and vote to make certain people really understand it is a two-step process. Registration is step one. Voting is the other piece. What we do is the many, many, many of our volunteers are retired. They are over the age of 65. But we also have a new crop of paid people who are under the age of 30. So all of my national staff is under the age of 40. Most are under the age of 30. So that gives us the opportunity to make certain that when we message, do we need to say things a different way for younger voters than what we're saying for voters that are 55 and older? And in some cases, yes. In other cases, this should work for everybody. We do a lot of work around issues. And that means we're in community and we ask people, what's important to you? So when we do GOTV in those communities, those issues that they said were important, they are right there on that palm card. Thank you, Ms. Blass. Would you like to add any additional recommendations for pulling in and engaging our youth? Yeah, I think what Andrea said speaks volumes, but I know a really important piece that I've been working on at the league, and I say this even more broadly with marginalized communities or communities that are typically underrepresented in voting. I live in DC, so that's just DC trap, you know, as it goes. I don't know if you can hear the honking, but I think people know when you're taking them seriously. And what I think oftentimes happens is that when we're interacting with young people, we're able to give them action items and have already created spaces for coordination that we want them to show up to. So we've created the rally. We're having the voter registration drive. We just need you to show up. 
But I think that when you're putting young people in positions of leadership and collaboration, and it's like, well, what issues matter to you? And when you're talking to your peers, how do you prioritize this over that? And what platforms and social media are more likely to get certain receptives? And how should we be formatting? When you kind of take that and you have them a part of that process from point A to point B, that not only has them, I think, more meaningfully engaged into your specific organization, but politics in general. And I think it also prepares them to actually be able to talk to their friends about what they're doing and the impacts of it. So I call it intern syndrome, but like moving away from that with how we deal with young people and taking us and them more seriously, I think is super important. Absolutely. And I want to just add one thing. One of the things that we've seen in communities that have given up voting because people have told us, I voted Democrat, I voted Republican, and it doesn't matter, nothing in my life changes. We try to help people see that they have at least been heard, that we are hearing their pain and we know what is important to them. So we never tell them, oh, you're voting to support this. We ask them. Exactly. All right. Moving on to technology. How should groups be more effective using technology for get out the vote? I think I already know where y'all are going with it. (laughs) Ms. Blast? (laughs) Yeah, I think... A big part of my work has been innovation, right? Because what I think oftentimes happens with digital platforms is that when you're thinking about an event and what you have to be prioritizing, it can be an afterthought. So if you have this really important in-person event and you're not thinking about how could I be filming and editing this content? How could I be promoting this through like infographics on Instagram so that even if you can't come in person, you're getting the general tenets of what we're trying to move. So by the time we're thinking about it, we maybe have it this weekend. And then the best that we can do is maybe send out a notification to show up or maybe send out a thank you afterwards. But we haven't given ourselves enough time and elbow room to really think about how we can be implementing it. So I think that technology can be more than like event notification. It can be more than just acknowledgments of events. I know a big thing that the league is talking about is obviously Juneteenth and things of that nature, right? And what we want to move our leagues from doing is an infographic or a nice graphic with Black people in it, and it would be great. And at the bare minimum, it's great to be that, hey, we're acknowledging this in the context of democracy and moving. But are you creating space with the Black and Brown organizations in your community? Are you participating in any Juneteenth rallies or parades that are happening there? Are you creating a donation drive and partnering with these Black and Brown communities to say, we're going to be using this to be registering at least 100 Black voters in our specific county or in our town? I think that's where you can have technology and also, I would say that the League has a app, like the League in Action app or the Outreach Circle app. And what I appreciate about that is it is basically a Facebook specifically for League work. And it can provide updates on what we're doing legislatively, our SCOTUS matches, what we're doing in person or virtually. And having an app or some other virtual program where it's maybe you don't have time to sit down with me and register to vote right here and there, or you're passing. But if you're signing a QR code and it takes two seconds, you're already in there and then I can reach back to you at a later date and we can build that relationship even if we're not face-to-face. So those are some of the things that come to mind. I think the technology goes hand in hand with reaching out to the youth because they know about apps. They're always on their phone. And I think the QR code was an excellent way to tie into registering to vote. I absolutely love that option. And we use Outreach Circle too. We absolutely love it. We run all of our texting campaigns on Outreach Circle. 
Absolutely. So, Ms. Miller, how have you stressed to the 501c3 and other D9 organizations how they can become more engaged without losing the tax status? Well, again, the C3 tax status is very, very, very specific that you cannot endorse candidates, you cannot push one political party over another, but you can help people get civically engaged. We really specialize when it's election season in giving voters information. When it is not election season, we really emphasize having voters let us know what their pain points are. And then depending on what it is, organizing around those pain points. So we've got some of our centers where the pain point is food insecurity. So we are working to secure funding to provide and uh, staff food pantries. Several of our local organizations are already food pantries. Hungry people don't vote. That is just a very basic fact. When we work with our C3 organizations and a number of our faith partners have been with us since 2017, they understand we know how to script and put in our language so that it is C3 specific and that we are helping voters who might not normally be able to go out and vote, we are helping them go and do that. Excellent. Did you want to add to that, Ms. Blass? I would just also add that, and I think it's unique to the league, is that we're nonpartisan. And I think that obviously when you're getting into that realm of like lobbying and when you're specifically endorsing a candidate, that's where it gets tricky and the edges of C3 status. But I think it provides an opportunity to speak more to the values and the issue areas than even just the individual person, right? So it's not that we invest in this specific candidate, it's reproductive health is a necessity, it is important, and we can't move forward politically without that being a part of the agenda. And I think that allows you to bring people to the table who may otherwise be kind of held up by monikers and titles of party to say, we're not here to talk about that, we're here to talk about addressing this issue that brings us all together. Well, Center for Common Ground is a C3 as well. We now have a partner C4, but on our C3 side, that is true. We are nonpartisan as well. So if ever we mention candidates, we have to mention all of them. We can never mention just one. Yes. So it's either all or none. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is an easy question. I know we have this answer. How do you recommend engaging our the faith community yes okay i just want to make sure right um, <laughs> and i think this is general but i think it's especially important when it comes to faith communities is that the first time they see you can't be before the election or before the ask to be involved in some pre-coordinated organizing typically whether that's happening at the school board level alderman level or any other type of local level 
faith communities are oftentimes dealing with all manner of legislation and policy shifts and what's happening with their local police department and the cultural funding that they're being able to receive and whether or not they're able to have certain events because of the politics in that area. So there are several probably touch points before the larger actions you're planning to coordinate as an organization where you can be present, whether you're a member of that faith community or an allyship of that community, so that when you're coming around, it's a pre-existing trustworthy relationship. And yeah. so it's like, you're there when we need you so we can have these larger, maybe even more contentious political conversations because I have investment in your community. And obviously like there's this very unique art in attaching like the history of faith communities to the current contemporary political conversations that we're having. I know that there's a lot of advocacy and activism at the pulpit. And so I think that especially with black churches, there's very unique intersections when we're seeing book bannings and when we're seeing restrictions on black and brown legislators in Tennessee. I think that there's a narrative of tying that to some biblical texts, of tying that to some of our civil rights work that also existed in churches that creates a call to action that's very unique and very generationally felt. And it's felt by people who are long-term congregation members and then people who are maybe new to that environment. So I think that it's really about understanding the intersections between politics and faith and how a lot of it is not very separate in the ways in which by being a person of faith, you have buy-in to this conversation. And I think identifying those connections is a really good way to work with that. Would you add that we should be engaging them early, not just during these the season? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we engage year-round, year-round. Yes, yes, Yes. absolutely. Yes. Well, Mary, I want to add something. Our faith partners are not Black churches, or at least most of our national faith partners are not Black. They're Jewish, they're the Unitarian Universalist, they're the American Ethical Union, they're the Workers' Circle. They're in California, New York, Chicago, and New England. So they are not in the South, which is the area where we work. So we started in 2017 as a totally remote engagement organization. And it was only in 2021 that we started building local rooted in the community uh, spaces, which we call democracy centers. And the folks there really are employed year round. Excellent. So imagine it's the year 2035 and 100% of the black women are voting in every election what would we have done to get to that point? I love, love, love <laughs> that question. The engagement is going to be very personal, very intense. For us, we are running food banks. We are doing clothing and book bag drives for the children for our more rural areas. We are making certain that people have broadband and then all those things in all those events and places, we are helping people understand that voting is really what brought them to this place. And it will be voting and being engaged that will continue to bring their community to the next level. So when we've got 100% of Black women voting, 
our messaging has been on target. Our engagement has been phenomenally successful. And now, where are the men at? <laughs> Ms. Blast, I know you have something to add. No, I feel like that has been such a political conundrum for me, like tying together that gender gap, because even when we're talking about like youth voter engagement, right? Black women are just underrepresented. So we're maybe 9% of the youth population and we're voting at maybe a 7%. But that widening of the gap is even larger for black men. So I'm just thinking about like that. So even though we're talking about black women and we're centering us because we do show up very consistently politically across all geographic regions, that's always something that's also in the back of my mind. But I guess only building on to what Andrea spoke of, it's, it's also, I think, meeting people to address the systemic barriers. Because if Black women are voting at 100%, that means that we've done away with felony disenfranchisement. That means we've done away with discriminatory voter ID laws. That means that when we're supporting our disabled Black women or older Black women, we're going away with the laws in Georgia that mean that they can't be given respite, that they can't be given food or water while they're in line and waiting. I think like, so it's also not even just energizing us as a population and making sure we're showing up. It just knows that when we're showing up, we know that we have precincts that aren't like telling people that, oh, you actually lined up too late and you can't vote, even if that's not true, or giving them the wrong ballot because they're not informed. Like that's also, I think, a big part of it, helping people to actually make it to the finish line. One word I would like to add is consistency, consistency in all that we're doing to get the word out. We just need to stay vigilant and stay consistent. That's the word that comes to mind when I see 100% participation. We were consistent and we were vigilant and making sure the word got out. Our last question is, we know there are people who consistently don't vote. What strategies are being used to engage them besides making it easier to vote, i.e. same-day registration or early voting? Go ahead, Ms. Blast. Okay, yeah. I guess it's interesting. Consistently, they don't they don't come to the primaries, they don't come to the generals, they just won't do it. Yeah, I feel like when we're talking to those populations of people, it really comes down to I have different priorities in my life and I don't yeah. necessarily see how voting needs to be over this, that, or the third. And so I think that when it comes to that population of people, I work at the national level, but the most meaningful conversations are at the local. Because even when you, we care about, I think it's because of politics and just like general technology and like our mainstream media is that a lot of our politics are nationalized. So people are having much larger conversations around what's happening in Congress versus what's happening at their local school board meeting or what's happening with their aldermen and their sheriff races. So I think that when you're trying to buy into people, it's like you actually maybe don't have to care what Biden's doing or what AOC is up to. You may not be interested in that and you don't have to invest into their MSNBC or CNN interviews. But if you care about what subject matter your child is learning about, this school board meeting that's 15 minutes from your house, that might be an election that you want to show up to because the material results that show that my vote mattered are immediate and clear and concise. Because I think that when we get to the higher level of politics, it can get kind of abstract and kind of frustrating that if I'm showing up all these times and you're still striking down Roe versus Wade and you're still not voting, uh, passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, what am I doing? But at that state and local level, a lot of these decisions can be made. Post Roe versus Wade, a lot of the work wasn't necessarily the national legislator. It was people voting at the state and local level to enshrine reproductive health into their constitutions or to ensure that they cannot be a felony charge by referendum. That's what matters. So I think those are the conversations that resonate with people who might otherwise be disinterested in politics. 
one of our Georgia Democracy Centers at one of our meetings made this statement, and I think it's so true. The further you vote down the ballot, the closer the change is to your front door. Exactly what you said, Noel. Exactly what you said. The NAHCP in Georgia did a study. And when they did their study of 1,500 Black people who did not vote in the 2020 election, nor did they vote in the runoff in 2021, they gave three reasons for not voting. Reason number one, I didn't know where the voting was. So that's why we make it a point of telling people where early voting is. You have to have a computer. It's only on the internet. Reason number two, they didn't have a way to get there. And the distant third reason was they didn't like any of the candidates. Yeah, I heard that a lot this last year, not liking any of the candidates, not thinking that anything's going to change. I actually had one young lady say to me, did you see what they did about the abortion law? That's why I'm not voting at all. I said, no, sweetie, that's why you need to vote. You need to know everyone that's in your district that's got their hand on this. But it's a, it was amazing to me, the misnomers out there. And people believe what they want to believe, but I, I truly believe we just need to stay consistent and stay engaged in getting the right word out. We did have a question from the audience. The question from the audience is, how do we ensure those who are truly underserved have a leadership role and get out to vote? I answered that in the chat. Our democracy centers are only located in communities where people have stopped voting. So if everybody in your community is voting, you're never going to have a democracy center there. And the democracy centers are hyper-local. They are generally, it's an organization or a person in the community that everybody knows. And what they do through a series of events is they bring the community in, they listen to the community and they recruit from the community so that all of the local democracies and our leadership is local. In Hawkinsville, we started that center in this, on December 20th, 2020. By January 5th, 2021, they had knocked on 2,500 doors in their local community and they had had 2,100 conversations because when people heard, oh, you're that Hawkinsville place, the Newberry Foundation, you're the people who provide food once a month, they went and got everybody in the house to come talk to them. So we have completed our questions. I would like to extend this opportunity for closing remarks, and I'll start with Ms. Blass first. No, thank you. I think that we're in a very treacherous political environment right now, and I think that a lot of our conversations have shifted from even just a matter of partisanship to the objective and direct targeting of different communities so you don't vote. It's not a matter of going to the marketplace of ideas and trying to bring different demographics of voters to your party by actually presenting legislation and policies that are of interest to them and in direct response to their need. Why negotiate when I can just make it so that you can't come to the poll? 
if you come to the poll, it's the wrong ID, you have to go back. And then you come back with the ID. And I'm like, well, actually, it's not that ID. It's a different ID. Meanwhile, different demographics of people, whether that's fishing licenses or gun licenses, those are registered voter IDs. So we're making it very clear who we wanted to have an easier time to get to the polls. So I think that my big conversation is just being innovative and being experimental. I think we have a lot of traditional and tried and true methods of bringing people to the table, but as technology advances, as the demographics of our communities change, there are more and more doors to open and more and more ways to bring in people who might not already be on your newsletter. I know a big thing that we're talking about with youth is that a really big underrepresented community is non-college. Because we go to these campuses and I think that we sometimes have privileged understandings of where our political futures are and who has the competency to lead. And we're leaving these people off the table because we're not going to community college campuses. We're not going to working class spaces with young people. We're not going to unions. I think those are a lot of the spaces that we're not really calling upon as consistently as we can and providing resource to. Because oftentimes voting and political advocacy is a risk. So a big responsibility for us is that if you take the risk, we're there when you fall. When DeSantis was targeting those uh, formerly uh, incarcerated people as, as I think a fear campaign to ensure that you don't try. It's important for organizations like this to say, hey, if you know you have the right to vote, we'll give you pro bono support. Yeah. We'll fundraise, we'll hold you down if you make the jump. And so I think that's the biggest thing. I think it's community reliance and self-support. And I guess those are my major takeaways. All right, thank you so much, Ms. Miller. And, and again, those are great, great takeaways that for us, it is all about the communities that we serve. We provide them with the training and our technology so that they are able to really go into their communities and survey. In Hawkinsville, when people come to pick up their free food, their payment is, are you registered to vote and or we're having this event, sign up and come to one of our events. Some of our democracy centers are literally working with returning citizens, people who were formerly homeless. So again, kind of the outcast in society. So we are there. We're just beginning to do a little work on college campuses, but our main work has always been in low voting and in many instances, they're low-income communities. And it's where are the people, that's where our folks are. Thank you both so much. This has been exciting. And I certainly hope that we can get together again soon and dialogue some more as the year progresses. The Black Women's Roundtable truly thanks you for your input tonight. And for all, thank everyone that submitted questions. And this is going to conclude our session for this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Finding Perspectives. We hope you learned a little more about getting out the vote and consider how it will factor into your voting decisions. For more information about the League of Women Voters, Arlington and Alexandria City, visit my.lwv.org backslash Virginia backslash Arlington or follow us on Facebook at LWV Arlington, Instagram at LWVARLALEXCITY, or Twitter 
at LWV Arlington, VA.